With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi, I'm Keith Law, and welcome to episode 85 of The Keith Law Show. I'll be interviewing author and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Catherine Schultz later in the show. Talk about her wonderful new memoir, Lost and Found, which I uh, very highly recommend. It is out just a few weeks ago. It's been out for just a few weeks in hardcover. Uh, If I sound a little different, it's because I'm getting over a cold. I took my first work trip of... 2022. I'd stop and think for a second what year it was. It is 2022, or at least it was last time I checked, and may have caught a cold on the trip, So, which is awesome. Um, it's also possible I just got it at home and the timing was coincidental, but I'm going to blame the trip rather than blame the children. It's more fun to do it that way. I will, as I speak these words, I am working on some sort of draft ranking, probably a top 30. It's usually where I start things. Hopefully that'll be up within the week at The Athletic. I can't promise it. I don't want to put something out there until I'm happy with the quality of it, but it should be out very soon. Keep an eye out. If you're not following me on Twitter, at Keith Law, on Facebook. Nobody uses Facebook anymore, right? Isn't that where the grandparents are? The parent? Oh, wait. I'm I'm one of the olds now, I think. I am on Facebook, at Keith Law Writer. Or you can just follow me on my blog, meadowparty.com slash B-L-O-G. Well, I am honored to be joined today by author and writer Catherine Schultz, who is here to talk about her new memoir, Lost and Found, which you can buy anywhere you buy books. I recommend your local independent bookstore or bookshop.org. She's also the author of Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So Lost and Found is a story in three parts, beginning with a loss, the death of your beloved father after a few years of ill health at age 74, with family and loved ones around him. Uh, your father sounds like someone I really would have enjoyed meeting, and even more so like somebody who just enjoyed meeting people, enjoyed life. Uh, tell me a bit about him, and I'm especially curious what parts of his personality you feel made their way into yours. Hmm, that's a great question. Um, yes, I'm sure you would have enjoyed meeting my dad and my dad definitely would have enjoyed meeting you, uh, not least because he would have a lot of sports related questions to ask you. Um, yeah, I mean, if my dad were sitting here instead of me, uh, the truth is you'd probably have to give up on asking questions. Uh, he <laughs> was an incredibly curious guy. He would have wanted to know everything about you from, you know, your family history to like what color that paint is on the walls behind you. Uh, and just a great conversation. Uh, because he was genuinely interested in the world around him and the people around him. Um, And, you know, I always thought and think that one of the most interesting things about my father is that he, um, nothing in his early life predicted that he would be an incredibly joyful, open humane person. Uh, he um, he was born in Tel Aviv when it was still part of Palestine, got kind of kicked around the world by the combined forces of 
poverty and geopolitical violence, uh, landed in Detroit when he was about 12. Uh, his parents' marriage promptly started to turn chaotic and angry and alienated. Uh, and, and yet somehow my dad really did emerge from all this just um, full of love and joy and delight and, and a kind of faith in the world. Um, not a naive faith, but but faith. In terms of what I got from my dad, well, I mean, not as much as I wish in the sense that I, I don't throw this term around lightly, but my dad was one of, you know, maybe four or five people I've ever met who I think was probably authentically a genius. I mean, just had a incredible, incredible intellect, uh, an incredible memory. He spoke seven languages. Uh, English was the last one he acquired, but he was, you know, twice as fluent as you and I combined. So I wish I'd gotten <laughs> more of his brain. Um, my sister got quite a lot of his brain. Um, uh I like to think that um, I'm a writer because of him. You know, he uh, he spoke all those languages, but he specifically he spoke them with a lot of joy. He loved uh, he loved words and language and ideas and literature. So I really do credit him uh, both with my love of writing and then with my love of the thing that I think always has to lie behind writing, which is a love of ideas. It's funny. I was going to ask, actually, do you credit your writing skill? I think you're an incredibly gifted writer. You also should have mentioned up top, you won a Pulitzer Prize for one of the greatest long reads I've ever read. This was long before I saw, uh, was familiar with your work, with your work in general. Um, your piece on from the New Yorker, which I guess is now seven years ago on the earthquake that's going to destroy the Pacific Northwest at some point. No big deal. Uh, did you grow up? In a world of books, in a lot where there was it a big reading household? Because that doesn't always go together. But my advice when I've spoken to students, I taught a class at a local university once. And I always say, if you want to be a great writer, you first have to be a great reader just to find your own voice, to understand how words go together and that there's not just one way to string words together. There's not just one way to tell a story. So encouraging people to just read a diverse diverse genres, diverse authors, whatever it is, that's how you become a writer. And I get, I got the sense from the first section of Lost and Found, that's probably what the house you grew up in was like. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I will just echo that I, it's phenomenal advice. And I, I think it has to be ongoing advice, you know, to this day, when I feel a little stuck on something I'm writing or a little dispirited about writing in general, um, I, I just try to go read something beautiful. <laughs> you know, it's, it's incredibly helpful to be reminded of, of the range of things you can do with words uh, and, and how differently that can work and how different it can sound. Um, but yes, I'm incredibly lucky. You certainly don't have to grow up in a household uh, basically built of books to become a writer or find a voice. There's all kinds of ways to construct it for yourself. But in fact, it was handed to me um, mm -hmm. In, in vast quantities. <laughs> uh, um, yes, both my parents really loved to read. And uh, I grew up surrounded by books. I grew up being read to. I grew up uh, watching my parents choose to read in their leisure time. Uh, and and possibly just as important, um, choosing to discuss with us what they were reading. You know, mm -hmm. on some level, reading is a private activity. You sit there with a book and your own mind. Um, but, but I was, um, from very young, I realized that there's this kind of secondary joy to it, which is you get to talk about what you're reading. Uh, and which meant that there's there's just always available conversation, you know, and it's about a crazy range of things because maybe this week you're reading Portrait of a Lady, but maybe next week for some obscure reason, reason you're reading like a history of like shipping containers. You know, there's, 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 always, there's always something to talk about. Uh, so yes, I absolutely grew up uh, in an environment that really 
valued uh, and and made just kind of constantly available to me books of every kind. It's funny you mentioned that to me that, that yes, reading is a solitary activity. It's probably my favorite. Um, I would say to me, it is a bit like meditation. I understand. I mean, I have the actual, um, you know, scientific, there's some science behind the benefits of meditation, but to me, it is, it, it is very much that sort of calming flow activity, as long as the book's good, obviously. <laughs> but right, I can just, I can disappear into a book. If I'm on a plane, that's my favorite thing to do. And generally, I won't notice how long the ride lasts, um, as long as the book, again, as long as the book is good. And to me, it doesn't matter if it's a mystery, if it's, I read some science fiction, I'll still always be a 15 year old boy on some level. Um, or a 15 year old girl for those of us who went deep in the <laughs> Asimov direction and around that. Ah, yes. yeah. uh, another thing we have in common. I read the whole foundation series and said, Oh, there's this whole extended series. And I think up until a few years ago, he was still my most read author. I finally have read more Agatha Christie books because that's ah. a very guilty pleasure. They're great for planes. The only thing guilty in Agatha Christie is whoever actually did it. I also yeah, that- come up on that. But <laughs> I'm glad you're saying all this actually because I should say that, you know, when I say I grew up surrounded by books and in a household that loved books, it was also completely lawless with respect to books. It's not like I grew up reading the classics, you know. I mean, I sort of right. wish in retrospect and I grew up with some of them for sure. But oh my gosh, I tore my way through Agatha Christie. You know, my dad was a big Robert Ludlow reader. I tore my way through kind of everything sitting around, including a lot of, you know, B-grade fantasy novels, a lot of B-grade mystery novels. And, you know, I, I think some of it really is just the training in experiencing that process of reading as pleasurable, the training in entering another world. So I just want to, you know, that's my kind of brief um, defense of uh, frankly, you know, fairly pulpy books. I, I think they were great for my mind too, in various ways. Yeah. And I think there's a, there are clear skills in, uh, for the writers in any genre, right? There's, mm-hmm. there are good, there's good sci-fi. There's highly literary sci-fi. Uh, the N.K. Jemison, basically everything she's ever written, I would say. Mm-hmm. I actually thought her last book, The City We Became, I liked that even more than the fifth season trilogy. I just think she's continuing to evolve and grow as a writer, and I'm loving the journey, taking the journey with her. But that it, really any genre can have its better writers, and you can have, can have more or less quality, right? There is pulp. There are, there are certainly books in any genre that can be churned out, look, seem like they were churned out by a artificial intelligence, and it shows. But then there are really wonderful writers in in any style. And then I would say, you know, I don't look down on genres. I read them a lot. I don't would never criticize someone for reading them. But I also think we can take something away from mm-hmm. anything from a book about shipping containers. If it's well oh, yeah. written, a good writer can make it interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my basic theory about writing is that actually um, anything can be done well. It just seldom is. <laughs> Which, right. um, but, but yeah, I mean, look, the truth is, I have certainly read um you know, you said genre fiction can be done wonderfully. Well, sure. Why on earth wouldn't it be able to be, you know, the the converse of that is I've read plenty of stuff that aspires to sort of high literary virtue that doesn't work at all. And, and, you know, wishes it read half as well as, you know, the average Agatha Christie novels. So, and, and I, you're certainly right that, um, I would love to learn more about every aspect of writing. And there's no question that if you want to think about plotting, if you want to think about structure, if you want to think about character, I mean, there are so many corners of the library to turn to mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and they aren't just the, um, the ones that I myself write in to put it mildly. 
So my parents were both sports fans and baseball fans specifically. But when people ask, why are you such a big baseball fan? I actually point more to my mother and her mother because they were both Bronx born Italians. So they were born to be Yankee fans. Basically, you had to be. They were the Italian, they were local team and they were very much an Italian team of Italian players. You mentioned your sports fandom a few times throughout the book. Was that more from your father, from both your parents and who were or are still, uh, if, if you still follow your favorite sports teams? Okay. I'm going to be incredibly disappointing on this answer, but I'll strive to at least be comic. That's okay. Um, so uh, definitely not from my mother who like, mm-hmm. you know, I love her so much. She uh, actually, in fairness, my mom has just spent the last several weeks obsessively watching the Olympics. So there is a lot of sports she really enjoys as a spectator. Um, and that was true all my life. Uh, she was mm-hmm. always a, a dedicated watcher of the Olympics. Interestingly, she really likes um equestrian sports. So spend a lot of time watching, you know, show jumping and this kind of thing. Sure. Um, I'm not sure she could accurately pair the name of a city and its team for more than like four places. <laughs> I hate to malign her publicly, but I think she would, I think she would accept that characterization. Um, my dad was a fierce sports partisan uh, and it's quite sweet to me. You know, I tell this story in the book, but um we have such an ingrained sense of the relationship between baseball and Americanness. That's why I loved Underworld, the Don DeLillo novel. I mean, yeah. he really just gets it, right? But, you know, I, I sort of understood that in the abstract from when I was very young, because it's part of the culture we breathe, you know, it's a sense of, of being American. But my dad really lived that. I mean, I wish I could, speaking of my dad doing this interview instead of me, I wish you could hear him recount the story of how when he was about 13 years old, He'd been in Detroit maybe a year, which is to say been in America maybe a year. And he had discovered this amazing thing at the time, which is Kellogg's or something was running one of these promotions. You buy enough cereals and collect enough box tops. You get a free ticket to a Tigers game. And I wish you could hear my dad describing. So he does this and he gets his free ticket, you know, way up in the nosebleed seats and takes a crosstown bus and, and takes himself to what was then Briggs Stadium. And to hear my father describe that experience of like coming through these like dark, dank, terrible smelling tunnels and, and emerging up into these high lofty seats of the stadium, something really did happen for him in that moment. I, I think that it probably felt the most like freedom he had ever tasted, partly because here's a boy just getting to go do a thing all on his own, right? But but partly because in fairness, he really had lived in constraints of, of deep non-freedom in other parts of the world. And somehow baseball ever after for him did become this sort of glorious uh, example of, of American liberties and wonders. And, and so he was not merely a fan in the sort of, ah, my team won, my team lost sense, but 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 sort of across teams uh, just fell in love with baseball as, as something that for him was kind of soldered to his sense of, of the privilege, uh, which I think at the time it really did feel like to him of, of, of getting to come to this country and, and live the life he wound up live, living, which is not to say my dad was a big rah-rah American dream champion kind of guy. He uh, he had reservations as uh, any thinking person does about various aspects of this country, but he loved it fiercely in the way that I think refugees uh, welcomed here sometimes very rightly do. And as part of that, he loved baseball. 
Uh, so it was my dad who was a big baseball fan. Interestingly, he bonded with his mother-in-law, my maternal grandmother, also a very big baseball fan. Absolutely none of this rubbed off on me. <laughs> In part, that is because my father's love of sports definitely stopped like hard at fandom. I mean, neither of my parents, they I love them dearly. They were the least athletic people you could ever meet. I was basically raised to be a kind of like disembodied bookworm. You know, I, I found my own way to uh, a real love of, of certain kind of athletics late in life. Um, but I've never been, um, I mean, look, I grew up in Cleveland. I have a deep um, undying love of, of underdogs. Um, I, you know, the, the, the team now known as the Guardians, a beautiful name, by the way, uh, mm-hmm. was was a part of my childhood in the way that the Cuyahoga River having caught on fire was part of my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's not that I don't appreciate it, but um, I'm, I've never been like a wild fan. I married a wild baseball fan, um, real Orioles partisan, lots of strong feelings on that subject, took me to an Orioles game very early on. But I myself am, uh, you know. I would say an admirer and an enjoyer, but uh, mm-hmm. but you have to kind of hit me on the head and say like, "Hello, it's the World Series." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, at least you've you have married someone who is a fan of a team that plays in a lovely ballpark. It's a, a I, I think Camden Yards is fantastic. A beautiful ballpark. It's true. Very fun place to go. Yeah. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So let's talk about her, actually. So you start with the, you know, for folks who haven't read Lost and Found, you explore loss in the first section, even one that you take pains to say was not a tragic one in the sense that we usually use the term. And then you shift gears to finding, specifically to finding love, or to borrow a line from Nat King Cole, what you, it's as if love came and hit you in the eye. And you describe the part I loved, you describe just knowing when you first met the woman you refer to throughout the book is C, who is the author, Casey Sapp, whose uh, book Furious Hours is also wonderful. Um, and Casey is now your wife. So can you describe, and you do this well in the book also, but how did you just know by, I think you said it was your second date, you'd never really felt that way before. And then you get into that situation and you just knew she was the one and told a family member, I've met the person I'm going to marry. Yeah. I mean, I actually think I knew earlier than that, but it's true that it was on the second date that I called my sister and said that, you know, it's a great mystery how one knows these things. Uh, and, I, and I write a little bit about that mystery in the book, but, you know, as lived from the inside, um, it's part of why I wanted to write the book. Is there anything more incredible than, I mean, in general, discovering anything, you know, terracotta soldiers, you know, new planets, whatever. Discovery is an amazing experience, but falling in love is really pretty astonishing, actually. And uh, unlike almost every other kind of experience we ever have. And, you know, in my case, it's so funny, you brought up that earthquake piece. So as it turns out, I was on deadline for that piece, 
when I was supposed to go have lunch with this total stranger, like some random friend of a friend was passing through my town. I had said, yes, sure, I'll get lunch with you. But then the day rolls around and I'm on deadline for that piece, which is actually a, a, um, a polite way of saying I'm about a week and a half behind the deadline for that piece. <laughs> So I'm like, oh, I knew that I, I, you said that. And I was like, I know what that means. Yeah, no. you know? <laughs> uh, yes. Journalistic fellowship. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I like look at my watch and I think Ugh, I have got to go to this lunch. Here's this like stranger. I said I would do this, whatever. But I am really behind. And I think, OK, like 45 minutes tops. Right. Have to eat lunch anyway. It's fine. I'll go meet her. Be polite. Get out of there. So I walk from my house to Main Street, to literal Main Street, this little cafe where we're going to meet up. And I will never forget, I, I got there first and I was standing outside and I look down the street. It's a beautiful view, actually. The street sort of falls kind of gently downward towards the Hudson River. So the whole Hudson River is in the background and the trees across on the other side of the banks. And there's this woman walking toward me. And mystery number one is I have no idea how I even know. I didn't Google her. I know I like I don't know how I I was utterly confident she was Casey, who I was supposed to meet for lunch. But almost right away, there was this kind of I, I, I don't even know how to describe it, like a a sense of fascination, a sense of focus. Uh, and it wasn't because she's beautiful, although she's very, very beautiful. I mean, we all meet beautiful people who do not like rivet us to a wall the moment we lay eyes on them. Uh, I it, it was just something, right? And we go inside and, and we order our lunch and we sit in this lovely outside patio. And I mean, 45 minutes, forget it, right? I, I Four hours later, I think I made my way home in this kind of haze of what just happened exactly. Uh, and, um, and yeah, you know, I, um, I wish I could parse what it is. Although I guess I also am glad that I can't because I, I like the element of mystery in love. And I'll tell you, it's a funny thing. I, I cast a pretty skeptical eye on, on love at first sight when I talk about it in the book, because I think it merits a skeptical eye. I mean, it's a very strange thing and it's a term easily thrown around. Uh, but I ultimately sort of yield to the mystery of it. Right. In part, because, you know, it's a strange thing. It's not just me. Right. I mean, my mother asked my father to marry her on their second date. Casey's father knew the moment he saw his wife, Casey's mother. Um, so it, it, I mean, it's funny that I happen to come from a lineage on both sides. Of, of falling in love at first sight, but it certainly doesn't happen to everyone. There are many, many ways to fall in love, uh, but it did happen to me. And I think it's part of why I got so interested in this strange and beautiful experience of, of discovery of these things that just can just kind of like tumble down into our lives. So you and Casey sound very similar in some core ways, especially of a shared intellectual curiosity, which I think is a pretty foundational element for a good relationship. But you differ in a lot of ways that you detail throughout the second section of the book, from your religious beliefs to your temperament to your interest in sports. Uh, you're even a mixed marriage, like my wife and I. You went to my wife's alma mater and I went to Casey's. Uh, you give one example that I really love, though, of an argument that started kind of out of nowhere on what was just kind of a pleasant day out. You were hiking in the woods. Um, for folks who haven't read, tell me a little bit more about that. And how do you and Casey weather all these, you know, some pretty significant differences in the types of people you are? Sure. Uh, yes. I um, I write at some length in the book about um, possibly the worst and certainly the silliest fight that Casey and I ever had. Uh, we were out um hiking in in Shenandoah National Park and uh we saw a 
black bear, which was spectacular. It's always fabulous to see wildlife and, and bears are amazing. And we sort of admired it for a little while. And then we somehow found ourselves discussing whether you are in fact more likely to see a black bear when you are out hiking for the day as we were, or whether you are when you are out backpacking, like, you know, deep in the, in the woods, multi-day kind of trip. This is a ridiculous, I mean, everything about this is just a stupid question, right? First of all, who cares? <laughs> that might be the fundamental thing. Who cares? Second of all, it's a great story though. This is, this is what makes it such a good story. <laughs> well, I think it's what makes it representative, right? Meaning mm -hmm. I think that um, anyone who's been in a relationship for more than like three and a half months knows that 99% um, <laughs> of the time, the thing you are like allegedly fighting about in a relationship is not the thing you are actually fighting about. So of course, Casey and I were not fighting about um, the, the relative probability of encountering black bears in various circumstances. We were fighting uh, in, the, in that case about, I think it's not even right to say we were fighting about anything. We were manifesting a set of fears, right? And, and in that particular instance, the fear on Casey's end was that I, by choosing to be with her, had somehow forsaken a life that I actually wanted, which was a life deep in the Western mountains, you know, backpacking solo for, you know, days and weeks on end. Uh, and, and that someday all that was going to, you know, I was, I was going to realize that I had abandoned something I deeply wanted in order to be with her. And the whole thing was going to come crashing down. From my perspective, I was like, I'm unbelievably happy. Like mountains are beautiful. They're amazing. But first of all, I can take you to them. And second of all, you know, they're, they're only a bomb to your soul. If your soul desperately needs one because you're lonely and haven't fallen in love, <laughs> don't know what to do. I mean, I overstate <laughs> slightly. I think mountains, I think the wilderness nature in general is kind of a bomb to the soul, but, um, but it's no substitute for making dinner with someone you love every night. Um, so, you know, that was the real engine of that argument was, um, you know, fear. Uh, am I going to be, am I going to be left? Are you going to leave me? Um, and I think fear often manifests as, anger or or distance or coolness or, or various forms of self-protection. So that's why I go into that fight in such detail. Um, but I also go into it because um, I'm, I'm pleased to say it was among the last of its kind, meaning we did ultimately sort out uh, how to how to resolve conflict with one another. Um, you gestured to differences between us and it is really fascinating. I mean, it was really fun to write a love story partly because I love my love story. I think I personally, you know, I'm very biased but I, I think I got one of the great love stories in history. Uh, certainly I got one of the great partners in history. Um, so it was incredibly wonderful to get to sit down and write it but it was also fun to, um, to, to bring some real thought to bear on the subject of relationships and how they work. Uh, because, you know, you mentioned all these differences between us. And it's true that when we first met, I thought, oh, you know, I'm older than Casey is. I'm this like completely secular, cynical Jew. She's an absolutely devout Lutheran. Uh, we have very different class backgrounds. I'm from the like, you know, upper middle class, suburban Midwest. She is from the um, rural working class in what is effectively a small Southern community. Um, and, and, and these were the kinds of things that on first meeting felt like they would be the the differences that would be effortful to bridge. Uh, in fact, without exception, those differences have felt beautiful and, and expansive. They've made my world bigger. They've made it more interesting. Um, and, and they've always felt central to um, the nature of my love for her. Mm -hmm. uh, the real difference um, that actually proved tricky was pretty much a difference in, in how to handle conflict, you know? And uh, I think that matters because, you know, 
even if you fell in love with someone who's incredibly similar to you, you know, so you're high school sweetheart, you went to the same schools, your parents were friends, you have the same class background. Like there's all these ways that everything can line up, but fundamentally we are all different people, right? And and our inner worlds work a little bit differently, no matter what. So it was interesting to me that ultimately the difference that mattered is the kind of difference all of us face, right? Which is you're you, I'm me. How do mm-hmm. we move through the world together? The final section of the book is called and. So for readers who haven't caught on, it's lost and then found and then and, um, which is where I felt like we get you in a more playful mood too. It's the, you know, you start with the quirky history of the ampersand, which I actually loved because I love that kind of stuff. And I wasn't aware actually sort of where the word comes from um, to the story of your wedding, including the, what I assume is funny now, but maybe wasn't funny at the moment that rain, like a torrential rainstorm interrupted the middle. Oh, of the it was reception. epically wonderful. Even in the moment, yeah. I have to say oh, it's, it's great. I mean, I could picture <laughs> I, that's it's so the way obviously I've said, I like your writing. It's so evocative. I had a such a clear picture. I was not actually at your wedding, so I don't really know what it looked like. But immediately, I could picture it. I could see the guests running. I knew exactly what that looked like, despite not being there, not lived through something like that. And it was, honestly, I'd say it was probably the single most memorable anecdote from the book in terms of how vivid the picture was that you gave me. And I'm not doing it justice. Folks will read the book and hopefully will agree. It's a great story. It's a story you'll tell forever. Both of you will will tell forever. Um, So I'm curious, though, with the as I'm reading the book, honestly, when you first sent it to me, I thought this is going to be sort of like three separate extended essays mm. that are loosely connected, but it doesn't play out that way. You do a really nice job of creating a through line from uh, from the first to the second to the third sections. But I was curious, you just thinking as a writer myself, is that how you conceived it, or was it? Did you have an idea for maybe one of these and then sort of build forward from it? No, I'm relieved to say it's absolutely how I conceived it. Um, relieved because, I mean, you will appreciate as a fellow writer, there, there's there's no harder problem in writing than structure, <laughs> especially yes. at that macro level, right? I mean, structure yeah. is a problem at every level, including sentences, but it's especially yeah. a problem at the really big level. So it was a great comfort to me uh, when I set out to write this book that the one thing I knew from the very beginning was that macro structure of these three parts, lost, found, and. Um, and in fact... Uh, the, the truth is I wrote the book because of the structure, meaning I had thought, um, you know, in, in some narrow sense, this book grew out of an essay I wrote for the New Yorker after my father died. That was uh, partly an elegy for him, but, but partly about um, all these other things we lose, you know, keys, cell phones, wallets, elections, whatever. Uh, so, you know, the, the lost piece kind of pre-existed the book in a sense. Uh, and I knew early on that, there was this kind of mirror image story that could be told, uh, which is to say that I knew I could explore this really fun category of finding and discovery. And that in the same way that my father's death served as kind of the anchor for this exploration of the category of loss, falling in love could serve as the anchor for this exploration of the category of finding. So I knew all that, but, um, but none of it made me want to write a book. What made me want to write a book um, actually was a completely, uh, kind of chance moment as these things sometimes are. Casey and I were discussing all this uh, and she happened to use this completely everyday phrase, lost and found. Uh, And for whatever reason, you know, because the mind is a very strange thing. um, I just really landed on the end. You know, I, it it just, it kind of echoed. We were in the car, it's the middle of the night, we're on a back road in Alabama. And I, the end felt so 
interesting to me right away. Uh, and I, I think that's because I had the experience of of finding Casey and losing my dad in quite quick succession. So I'd already been thinking about how, you know, these, even these most heightened and crucial emotional experiences of our lives do not just exist in a vacuum. We don't get to experience them all by themselves. We're always experiencing this thing and that other thing, you know, grief and falling in love or, or whatever it may be. So I, I, the and just really rang out to me and, um, you know, I think as a writer in general, for good or ill, I often think for ill, um, I'm drawn to these kind of abstract categories of human experience. You know, my last book was about being wrong, you know, this kind of category of error. And so this moment of suddenly realizing, oh, there's this really universal human experience, which is the the kind of emotional conjunction, you know, the sort of feeling everything at once or or, or feeling many things at once, often really contradictory things, um, felt interesting and unexplored to me. And the minute that locked into place, I thought, ah, okay, like this actually is a book and it's a, it's a little triptych and I know how it works, which is a grave overstatement. I had a lot to figure out, but uh, but but the superstructure was there from the beginning. So we learn near the very end of the book that you and your wife were expecting your first child together. And I know from a little social media stalking that that has resulted in a baby. In fact, so, it has. Yes. So how is the baby? Uh, a little daughter, little girl. A little daughter. Uh, excellent. Girls are the best. I say that as girl dad, one daughter, two stepdaughters. So how is the baby? And I'm curious too, how is it becoming a first time parent at our age? The baby is amazing. She is the delight of my life. Um, she's. I, I, I'm disappointed she's not here on the call. Actually, you know, That's she the does whole occasionally reason. put in a cameo. It must be said. Uh, her grandmother is here today, so we have a little ah. familial childcare, which is wonderful. Um, it's great. She is uh, just over six months old. She is so funny and charming and interested in the world, and she does something new every day. And um, it's so funny. My partner had her, but she. Um, she reminds me in some ways of my dad, uh, who, whose name was Isaac, which means laughter. And our little daughter is just, you know, she one day when she was a little over three months old, she she had never laughed before. And she woke up from a nap just laughing and she's been laughing ever since. <laughs> uh, so she's oh, a real delight. Um, yes. And to the question of having a, a child as an older parent, um, you know, I think my chief feeling is overwhelming gratitude. Um for two things, partly I, um, I think I had sort of accepted that I might never have children, even though I've always wanted them, mm -hmm. or, or certainly that if I did have them, I was likely to have them not exactly by the means that I thought I would as a child, you know, raised from an infant, you know, my, my, my baby in some strange sense, whatever that might mean, mm -hmm. um, which to be honest, would have been completely fine. I mean, you just referenced stepdaughters. I'm sure they're the joy of your life. Uh, I, um, Casey's father is and uh, was adopted, and and his adopted parent, adoptive parents meant the world and the cosmos to him. Uh, and um, I would have been fine having a child anyway. I could have a child, but I'm just overwhelmingly grateful to have one at all because I've kind of gone through this almost mourning process of like, oh, I don't think this is going to happen. But the other thing about being an older parent is that. Um, I, you know, I think if I were younger, I might, the baby might feel like she was displacing something, something I had been doing in life before, mm -hmm. but I feel like I got to have all the adventures, you know, I, I got to be um, 
footloose in the world. I got to travel an insane amount, you know, um, both before I met Casey and then once I did meet her, you know, we, for her book, we spent two years basically almost always on the road. It was incredibly fun. We could just decide at the last minute, yeah, let's drive another hundred miles. Let's drive through the night. Let's stop here. This place looks cool. Let's walk around. Uh, and, and so I feel like I just kind of got to do all the things. And it was so clear to me that there was one adventure I, I hadn't gotten to have. And, and now I'm on that adventure. And I cherish every moment of it. You know, do I wish that um, I was, do I wish I could combine that with like 20 year old me who honestly didn't need to sleep for four days and was completely fine. And, you know, who had never heard of back pain and yeah, sure. Of course. Right. I mean, who doesn't wish they had all the kind of physical attributes of youth. Um, on the other hand, I just, all that pales beside the absolute joy of having her. Yeah. That's I, subtext of my question was, I think you're a year or two younger than I am. It's like, yeah, sleep is a little bit more of a challenge now. And yeah, back pain, or in my case, like hip pain. Thank goodness my youngest is still small enough that I can do the one hand grab as she goes by. She's very small. Um, and so if she's running, I can, not that I have to do this very often, but I can just scoop her up with one Intercept hand. Intercept yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But A, she's going to get too big for that. And B, or, or I'm just going to get too old for that at some point, but I'm enjoying it. It, it is wonderful to go through it again because mm. um, I had mine quite some time ago and then I got married a year ago and now two stepdaughters and I get to do the dad things again. Yeah. I like being the the dad, especially to be the silly dad, which is kind of the stepdad's role, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm just here for jokes and games and, you know, occasionally to cook dinner. And I feel like <laughs> that's all the good stuff. Yeah. Well, in fairness, I should say um, my my daughter made life very easy for me on the sleep front because I mean, I actually should never say this in public you might need to edit this part out, but she's an unbelievable sleeper. She's sleeper. I knew you were going to say Yeah, she's an incredible sleeper. It's an embarrassment. What a good sleeper she is. That's great. What a so, gift. Oh, my God. I, I, it was literally the, the thing I was most worried about. It might have been the sure. only thing other than her physical health and safety that I was worried about, about having a baby. And so apparently yeah. she somehow intuited that and was like, it's cool. I'm going to sleep through the night. Don't right. worry about it. Do you lie at parties when people say, how does she sleep? You're like, terrible. I can't oh, bring God. myself to. You know, parenthood is so humbling. I swore like I'm not going to be vain about my child. I'm not going to boast about my child. Of course, I boast about my child, including about her incredible sleep and how gorgeous she is and how brilliant. So, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> Wonderful. My guest today has been Catherine Schultz, author of the new book, Lost and Found, which is out now in hardcover from Random House, and another excellent book called Being Wrong. She also won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for feature writing for her New Yorker article, the really big one, about the earthquake that will one day destroy the Pacific Northwest. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. By the way, obviously, as I speak these words, we are still in a lockout. Major League Baseball has locked out the players. We don't know when there's going to be games again. But to rest assured, one of the benefits of my beat is that colleges and high schools are still playing. There will be some sort of minor league action. There will be some sort of minor league spring training. So my writing schedule should be pretty close to normal at least until we get Major League Baseball games back. That is my hope. I can't quite promise that, but that is my hope. So I expect content to pick up very soon. In the meantime, feel free to check out my ranking of the top 100 prospects in baseball, which also goes along with a ranking of the all 30 farm systems and a top 20 prospects ranking for each of the 30 teams in baseball. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. <laughs>